Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlow Castain, the Chief Executive of Farmwell and the founder of the Food and Global Security Network. In the last programme, I spoke to Charlie Davis from Savills about carbon farming and about the way that carbon and more broadly the market for natural capital goods and services is starting to shape the countryside. Today, I'm talking to two people with very different roles and approaches to the carbon market, but who both believe that channelling finance from carbon sequestration and storage can help to fund broader land regeneration. Thomas Gent is a fourth generation farmer based on the Lincolnshire Cambridgeshire border in England. He's the founder of Gentle Farming and is working with Agreener.com to make their carbon payment platform available to farmers in the UK. Juna Mikola is a regenerative agriculture specialist based in Kampala in Uganda and he's a founder of Soil Watch which monitors carbon levels and soil health using both satellite and ground-based measures. Welcome both. Hello, thanks for having us. Hi, uh, thank you. Thomas, your family's been farming cereals and eggs for decades. What made you want to diversify into carbon sequestration and storage? That's a good question. Um, Yeah, so we've been farming cereals for four generations, um, but we've been farming sort of regeneratively or sustainably, whatever you want to call it, um, for the past 13 years. So we've always been looking at soil and how we can improve it over that period. And really during the first lockdown in the UK, um, I started to look at all the other opportunities that regenerative agriculture could bring. And carbon just became one of those ones that was interesting and it seemed like there was an opportunity in it. So yeah, I kind of set myself the challenge to see if I could make it happen. And you're now working with the Danish agritech company Agrina to make their carbon trading platform available for UK farmers. So how did that relate relationship develop? I think you started trying to sell carbon yourself and and now you've sort of got into this sort of slightly bigger corporate world. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm just a farmer. Um, I didn't know much about carbon before we started to look at this, before I started to look at this. And really in the first lockdown, I had a lot of time on my hands um, and I set myself the challenge to see if I could make the carbon offsetting happen on on our farm, see if I could sell the carbon certificates from our farm. Um, And I tried many different ways to do that. I tried lots of different ideas and opportunities and a greener came across a greener about a year ago now um, and they was developing this carbon platform um, and they needed a bit of help and they needed a bit of abilities to bring it to the UK. Very kindly, they formed a relationship with me to let me bring it to the UK, basically. And Juna, you're operating primarily in Africa and on quite a grand scale to unlock finance for sustainable land use. What role does Carbon play for you and the work that you do? At Soywoods, we are uh, the, the group of co-founders. Uh, everybody has a background working on aid and development uh, and agriculture in mainly in East Africa and Horn of Africa and Sahel. And as we've seen tens or probably hundreds of different projects, we could increasingly see that a lot of human suffering was actually caused by uh, uh, environmental degradation and land degradation. And we didn't see uh, a lot of funding going into that. Also, we didn't see, we're talking about NGOs, UN agencies and so on. We didn't see also people really understanding that what uh, land degradation is, because it takes a long time to happen, and what kind of a negative impact that has for uh, development. Uh, that's why how we got started with the, with the soil work. So now naturally, um, we're increasingly seeing that uh, a carbon is being priced. So and as we as the land degrades, um, you lose carbon from from there from the soil and also above current biomass and vice versa. Also, if you're able to restore land, then you gain carbon. So we see that as an element to partially finance landscape restoration and sustainable land use in these areas where we work. So it's about channeling funds uh, that are available for carbon into delivering more sustainable land use more broadly. Yeah, exactly. So at, at the moment we are in kind of like uh, extractive 
land use and extractive economy where we continuously driving down the, the ecosystem capacity to maintain human life. And a lot of people know it, a lot of pastoralists we work with, they know it, a lot of farmers uh, know it. We, we hope that carbon uh, and, and having a price for carbon that can help to incentivize more sustainable land uses and uh, land management regimes. Now, that's the same for you, Thomas, isn't it? That the, the monetization of carbon is a way of bringing more money in generally to the farm so that you're able to support that regenerative production. Now, you mentioned at the beginning that you were farming sustainably or regeneratively. And of course, the two are, are quite different. So what is it that makes you certain that you're farming regeneratively? It's a really good question. And I think the word regeneratively is kind of banded around quite a lot at the minute. It it's seems to be a very hot subject, especially in corporate worlds where this is getting used i'm very i'm quite nervous that the word regenerative farming is going to get a bit of a greenwashing thing where people don't quite know what it means and it gets miscommunicated so i i, I mean when i speak i usually say you know we farm regeneratively sustainably whatever we farm focusing on the soil and partnership with nature that's kind of how i define it essentially and juno you're working you know the data sets that you're working with are all about using you know big macro data sets using satellites and i wonder what is it specifically that you can tell from satellite data and whether you primarily rely on the data that's coming from satellites or whether there is a process of on-the-ground verification as well? Yeah, so this is actually something quite new. It's, it's only starting from 2017. We have a little bit better granular data so we can analyze more in detail what's happening on the, on the land. So this is somehow new and that that's the satellite data is also combined with the, with the different machine learning algorithms. So there's a lot of new tech which is Yet to be, we yet to find like what is the best way to to leverage this technology and science. What we measure, maybe the main things that we measure is the photosynthetic activity and biomass being produced, and we analyze that on a, on a time scale. So how does it change? So so that's kind of the main thing you can see from the from the satellites. Uh, but that takes a bit of modeling as well. So it's actually the way we process data and the way we we analyze the data. Basically, three main components. There's the satellite data. So uh, there we can we can get information about the biomass. Uh, photosynthetic activity and so on. And then we have different process-based models with which we can then, once we have this satellite data, uh, we can then feed in and feed in uh, different uh, uh, climate factors, moisture, uh, temperature, and so on. So then we can compute other variables from there as well. And yes, we do need some on-the-ground on verification as well. You're basically predicting something, and then you need to go and check that how far your prediction is. And in many areas, there's a bit of a problem. We don't have a lot of on-the-ground uh, data sets. This is likely to improve. And as we have calibrated the models to new areas, then we're going to need less and less on-the-ground verification. So you're measuring specifically moisture um, and greenhouse gas emissions. But when you're talking about biomass, what does that look like on a satellite? What, what is it that you're actually seeing in order to be able to analyse? So what you see is that if you, if you, think, if you think about what, what, what makes the, basically this, this planet work, is, is the, the core engine is photosynthesis. That's makes uh, water to cycle, uh, carbon to cycle, and so on. So, and if you think about what happens in uh, in photosynthesis, you have basically energy coming from the sun, and then that's being bind uh, together with the, with carbon to, to biomass, and then you have water going in as well. And then what you have got coming out is then a biomass and oxygen. So plants, the, the leaves, they're actually kind of solar panels, which extend to, to gather uh, radiation from sun. This is what reflects back to space. And we can compute set and uh, indicators based on that. Just looking at leaf growth, we have uh, depending of the of the plant type and so on. So these are the kind of indicators uh, we're looking at. It, that's what we can see as well. So it's not just carbon. We can even 
let's say on ranks and management, we can even analyze how much forage uh, per hectare is being produced. So we can tell you how many uh, heads of livestock you can grow uh, in that, that area can feed. Uh, and um, as, you, as you know, the, the plants don't take carbon from the soil. Uh, they rather are the way around. They add it to the soil. So uh, uh, based on that, that tells a lot what, what's happening for the carbon as well there and uh, how much biomass being produced. And, and then, yeah, obviously, set an uh, amount of um, that biomass is then carbon. So for both of you, it seems that the motivation behind the work that you're doing with carbon is to regenerate land. And while carbon's the easiest form of natural capital to monetize, the aim is to use the funding, to channel that funding to help deliver a much greater range of ecosystem function on the land in question. And Thomas, I just wonder, coming back to you, what the particular changes are um, that you're most interested in measuring? I think this is the really exciting thing about regenerative agriculture as a carbon solution compared to a lot of other ones. What happens is when we improve the soil and when we look after it in the correct way, it definitely has a carbon benefit, but it has multiple other benefits that come alongside that. You know, there's, you don't pick one, they all kind of happen at the same time. That's how, that's how nature works. Obviously, the carbon is the bit that we measure and it's the bit that we can sell because that's what the companies want to purchase. And it's kind of the easiest metric that we can talk about at the minute. But what we can see very quickly is biodiversity metrics coming in, water quality metrics coming in to kind of build the whole package of, you know, when a farmer's making this transition, he has this impact on all of these different areas. And as we start to quantify all of those other areas, I really think what's going to happen is we're going to just increase that carbon value or increase the value of the produce that comes off that farm. It's interesting when you talk about those multiple outcomes, I'm thinking about regenerative agriculture and again, how we stop it being greenwashed and how we actually explain it to people. And it always seems to me that, that basically year on year things need to be getting better and it may well be that in a particular year there's uh, you know there's a problem there's a particular weather event that changes that but providing that trend is improving that there is an upward trajectory from each of those metrics you can realistically say that that land is regenerating is that what you're finding on your own farm Thomas? Yeah absolutely it's very difficult for for farmers that are on one year cycles one year short term rent agreements that kind of thing and when you look at um, you know yields obviously really important every year that kind of thing that's the business case that a farmer needs to do to be able to keep you know to keep in business and to keep farming but soil improvement is such a long-term game um, and the regeneration of the land is not going to take one year it's going to take decades probably at least five years so exactly we we need to keep up those practices over that period of time to make that to make any change really and you know the projects that you're working on are counted in terms of hundreds of thousands of hectares and i wonder if you could talk about why it is that that land in the Sahal is under threat and in need of regeneration in the first place. Yeah, that's actually an interesting subject. So first of all, Sahel, it, it means coast in Arabic. And if you start coming down, so you have the Sahara and then you start coming south, the, the next biome is, is not a, a, a rainforest, but it's precipitation gradually start to increase. So you have different forms of semi-arid and arid lands there, savanna and shrublands and so on. When we talk about degradation of that area, uh, many times it's People just mention climate change. What we see is it's rather just a multiplier of climate change. So it just makes things work. But the, the first, if you look at the drivers of land degradation in this area, it's mainly unsustainable land use. And, and most of that is related to food production, both cropping and, and then uh, uh, livestock production. And uh, well, there's different kind of unsustainable uses. It's, it's bush uh, following, slash and burn. Where every every seven to ten years, uh, land is being turned to um, uh, uh, you go to a new land and and you basically turn natural ecosystems to, to cropland. 
But then also a big driver of land degradation here is, uh, is the livestock sector. What we see, for instance, in Sudan on the 70s, uh, the livestock herd was about uh, uh, 40 million animals. And at the moment, it's uh, over 140 million. And the reason why this herd has grown so fast is because the, the pastoralist livestock system, it got integrated with the global economy. So before they were mainly growing this keeping herd for themselves, a little bit for the sales. And now most of it, it a big part of it, it goes for the export. So uh, we have a huge increase on the herd size. And what we think is that, so if you look at the prices, uh, what they get, so mo most of their uh, animals are being exported as, as, as live cattle. And the prices are just uh, uh, fractions uh, what, what, they, what they have from the other parts of the world. So we see that uh, the, these commodities, they don't truly capture the, the, the resources that have been used uh, for producing those, those uh, products and, and the costs. And, and what is happening on the global scale, on the global trade, that we're subsidizing the welfare in rich countries at the cost of the uh, uh, ecosystems here in the poor countries or, or poorer countries, low-income countries, which then again uh, affect the human life here. What I'm sort of hearing there is that there's been a transition away from what is essentially farming, cropping, uh, livestock production for local markets and uh, a gradual, I mean, over the last 30, 40 years, a gradual intensification of that in order to feed a global marketplace yeah and actually here it's even so here we, you can talk about on, on let's say if you have to increase your agricultural production in, in a country you you have the vertical expansion so let's say you try to get more out of hectare and here a lot of it is so a lot of small order farmers they use no uh fertilizers at all uh or, or anything like that so a lot of here it's just horizontal expansion as well so which means that we have taken massive, massive amounts of uh, natural habitat, dryland forests, forests, rangelands, uh, and we turn them into cropland, and then we farm them for a couple of years, and then we abandon it, and you basically leave man-made uh, desert behind. And, and the same goes for the livestock sector, that uh, you, you can drive thousands of kilometers and all the grass is gone, and, and then you talk to the people who were living there in the 70s, they tell you there was a tall savanna grass growing, and there was giraffes and, and predators and everything. So. Uh, a lot of that intensification has also been also been just a horizontal expansion of production. Thomas, it seems to me, listening to what Juno said there, there's a degree to which the African story of land degradation isn't so very different from the story in the UK, albeit that that what's happened in the Sahel is perhaps over the last sort of 40 years or so, whereas in the UK it's maybe taken 100 or 200 years, but still that commodification and pressure from the global marketplace have been key drivers in unsustainable land. Land use. Do you think that this new global marketing carbon has a capacity to change that? It's a really interesting point. And that, I think that's, well, it's really why I started looking into all of this, because I, you know, I knew we was farming in a very different way, you know, not to everybody, but to, to the average, I would say. And we, we wasn't getting any, you know, we were still having to sell on the commodity market price for the commodity market value. And, and that was all we was getting. But I knew we was producing it in a completely different way. So personally, that's that's what I wanted to achieve. I wanted to find a way to differentiate our product. And the only way I could do that simply at the start was carbon. As I get increasingly kind of, you know, into this industry, I can see that I think in the future, the value is not going to be selling your carbon certificate to, to a company or that kind of thing. It's going to be tying it alongside your product. So what we should really be doing is valuing the product that comes from a regenerative farm much greater than, for example, as Juna said, in some of those situations, which seems crazy, you know, how can you farm a land and then you know degrade it so much that you have to abandon it? I think the point is like everything's interlinked. And when you improve soil, you improve everything. Improving your carbon practices or carbon impact as a farm and so 
sequestering and reducing your emissions is going to have an impact on all of those other things. So if we can focus on kind of a simple thing that farmers can really get their heads around and actually you know, make it happen on the ground, because you have to remember that farmers have to make this happen on the ground. It's very, it is a complex thing to switch away from more conventional practices to using more regenerative practices in the UK um, on some of our soils. So we need to keep it simple, but we need to allow them to get that reward. Juna, central to this conversation, I guess, is the degree to which we're trying to deliver the multiple outcomes that uh, that you and Thomas have been talking about this morning, or whether we're focused on single outcomes. And I know those are kind of polar opposites and, and the world doesn't quite look, work like that. But do you think that there are risks that the carbon market could simply create new unintended consequences? With land use, for example, being skewed away from food production and used primarily to intensively sequester carbon and indeed if that is a risk are there ways in which we can guard against it so we focus a lot we work on the on the drylands and and rangelands and let's say 50 percent of the world's surface can be classified as a drylands and and up to today uh, there's been mainly that people clearly start to understand that uh, uh for instance forests are a big carbon sink but what is many times poorly understood that there's way more uh carbon being stored in in soils for instance than in the apocrine biomass and, and atmosphere together. So already the, the ecosystems where we work, you don't have enough precipitation that there would be a full-scale forest growing here. So what are the kind of then land uses in these areas, uh, except of uh, just natural habitat? Um, by rangelands, we mainly mean uh, areas where you either have livestock or, or, or large herbivore uh, wildlife herds benefiting for the forage and, and, and shrubs which are growing. In these areas, let's say, from the point of view of rangeland management, actually the uh, forage production correlates positively uh, with the soil organic matter or, or carbon on the soil. If we're able to put up uh, regimes that help to uh, manage large uh, areas of rangeland more sustainably, we're not actually reducing the uh, food production, we're increasing the forage production, which means we can increase the, the herd. We just move the herd uh, differently uh, and then you come different grazing plans and rotational grazing and, and holistic grazing and, and so on. So I, we think for sustainability of the carbon market, uh, there there has to be these win-win situations uh, and, and the local communities have to benefit from that. Even the, if that's not there, the, the main risk for nature-based carbon offset projects is that they're not sustain it, uh, socially sustainable. So the local communities won't benefit it. And that's why they will, let's say, go and uh, cut down the, the trees. So there's a real difference in terms of the quality of uh, the carbon drawdown and the, the additional benefit of the carbon that's pulled in. I wonder, you know, when you're talking about quality there, are you largely providing data that supports a regulated carbon market or are you supporting the voluntary carbon market as well that Thomas is involved in? Yeah, so at the moment we are, we're looking at a lot of projects. Uh, some projects have already been there for, for quite a while. Uh, we're just taking uh, an evaluation of the net carbon fluxes of, of those activities. So uh, the main source of funding we would be then looking to scale these projects and channel finance to sustainable land use. Uh, uh, these are like uh, uh, what you call multilateral uh, climate finance institutions. So and, and then voluntary carbon markets as well. Uh, and, and I would maybe add there that as maybe 
uh, carbon is being increasingly priced and monetized. It's even for different investors and donors. It is one of the key metrics is, is that what is the, the same way you'd be looking at how much economic value a, a large scale agricultural project is, is creating, you then looking at what is the net carbon flux of that project. So there's a lot of different financiers who are interested on, on uh, let's say, on, on, la- on projects which have, which have a land use element that what is the what is going to be the impact on the on the ecosystem carbon of these projects? So for some people, it's just about the carbon. And for other people, there is a, a desire to make sure that the carbon drawdown is happening in balance uh, so that it's it's driving improved ecosystems as well. Yeah, so uh, w- the way we see it, uh, and, and it's a little bit what, what Thomas said as well, uh, looking at carbon alone is, is, is not going to do much. What we're looking at here is we can call it something, for instance, integrated landscape management, but but rather an interdisciplinary approach on, on landscape. So we're looking at both socioeconomic factors and then we're looking at the ecological factors. And for instance, we might have a, an agricultural investment plan and the side of the economic value it's creating, we're also calculating the valuing the ecosystem services. Uh, that that project will will create, and so their carbon also plays a plays a role, and and then can actually so many times if we if you look at the where does the uh, how do you create sustainably value from land or or, or even in a regenerative way, uh, carbon only has it, it's just one element of finance. Uh, maybe there maybe there's an increase for its production, maybe because you have some more more soil organic matter, um, you're actually improving your profitability of. So it's it's pretty much those same things that uh, Thomas is also working with. And in terms of the carbon market, verification and quality of that carbon drawdown is clearly super important. And I wonder what sort of challenges you face in your work and how you and your partners, such as NGOs and the UN, guard against possible destruction of the sequestered carbon assets. How do you make sure that those carbon assets don't get degraded? What are the challenges is that Let's say the, the the dynamics of land degradation are extremely complex because you have both ecological factors that you're looking at and combined with the socioeconomic factors, and that's why we many times a lot of uh, nature-based uh, uh, solutions what we've seen is are very simplistic that there's just a one let's say you dig uh, dig holes on the ground or or you just plant trees. I guess because you know people are lazy to really address these the, the real drivers of land degradation. And, and which are oftentimes uh, socioeconomic. So I would say that's the main challenge is really to understand that how can we stop financing unsustainable land use and how can we start financing sustainable land use? And that takes a lot of research. It, it's, and, and you have you need multidisciplinary teams to do that. You, you need biologists and, and you need sociologists and, and, and you have to bring the, all that science together. So it's, it's, it's really complicated. And that's also the, the way you got it. So the, main, you, the better you do your homework, the better you really understand the, the socioeconomic context on the ground and also the ecological factors there and how they are uh, intertwined and how, for instance, the, the ecosystem restoration can uh, uh, sustainably improve the livelihoods in that area. And we have to remember in many African countries, for instance, uh, something like 70% of the population, their livelihood is directly depending on, on, on natural assets and natural capital. So the only way really to improve lives in, in that area, it, it, sustainably, it's not giving them free food, but it is to improve those natural assets that then sustain human life. So I, I guess that's the main, the, the main way to guard is, is, is to, to do your homework well and really understand the socioeconomic factors on the ground and, and how they're connected with the, with the 
ecosystem health. And to make sure that the economic and the social value of working with those carbon assets is greater than continuing with that sort of slash and burn approach to agriculture that was there previously. Exactly. So that, and that's, that's actually an interesting discussion is that if you, we talk about pricing carbon uh, to fix a market failure, and that is mainly the, that the, the we've been increasing the too much of carbon dioxide on the atmosphere. But from the point of view of somebody who's working with the land use uh, in these areas, by pricing carbon and taking that in account in economic calculations, we're actually fixing much more negative externalities on not only climate change. And, and why is that? It's because carbon is the main building block of all, all living material and even actually uh, decomposed material. So when you start actually putting a price on that asset, then the economic calculation on how you're using your land, that, that changes. Thomas, another key principle of carbon farming is additionality. How do you, on your farm, go about achieving additionality and verification in terms of the carbon that you're sequestering and storing? Absolutely. So the two kind of key pillars of any carbon program is always additionality and permanence. Obviously, permanence is touched on really well. We can talk about that as well. But additionality is something we need to cover, something we always have to talk about. So what it means essentially is that we're we're doing something beyond what we what was normal practice and how we see it is to make any significant change to a soil to to improve it practices have to be carried out over over a consistent period of time to make any reasonable change so what the agreement program does is it rewards farmers for changing away from inconsistent or unreliable kind of uses of regenerative practices to much more consistency in their usage and farmers when they sign up to the program commit to multiple year consistent use of regenerative practices and with a greener because i think that you know when you were first trying to earn money for the carbon that you'd produced in your farm you were using the agreener system is there sort of a, a, a toolkit that's used there for you to help with uh, analyzing those metrics so that you know precisely how much additional carbon has been sequestered absolutely so Essentially, when a farmer wants to come and you know learn about what, what the opportunities might be for them, they come on the system, they type in their information on a field by field basis, and we run the calculations through through those numbers. And then we obviously do a lot of verification on those numbers at the end. But what it means is that any farmer at any point can come on for free, just plug some numbers in and see what see what results they get. It needs to be accessible and it needs to be as simple as it can. So uh, is it an, an Agreener sort of a bespoke system that Agreen has developed or are you plugging into something like the farm carbon toolkit to get those numbers correct it's, it's a bit of a mixture of both of those things so a greener have their own system and their own team team of scientists and carbon scientists and then we also plug in in the background to the cool farm tool which is obviously an industry standard carbon calculation system so it's a combination of those two things but if you're a farmer coming on the system it you wouldn't be able to tell the cool farm tool is in the background but it is <laughs> and of course cool farm tool as you say you know they are well known certainly in britain as being you know, very robust calculators of carbon. So uh, that's that's really interesting. Now, for me, Thomas, the principle that farmers should deliver net zero for their own businesses before using their land to offset for other industries seems to me to be quite important. I, I think that you have a different view. I definitely don't have a different view. I would agree with you. It's definitely important that farmers become net zero. The interesting thing is what obviously we, you know, we have to take a, posi- a bit of a position on this because, you know, we're helping farmers produce these certificates or they run these numbers. And what we've decided is we want the farmers to decide. We want the, the farmers are doing the work. The 
farmers are producing the asset and producing the carbon certificate, the farmers should decide whatever they want to do with it. We issue the certificates directly to the farmer's carbon bank account, if you want to kind of imagine it like that. And then the farmer does whatever he chooses. I, I personally think in the future, you're going to get the most value out of your product, your ton of wheat, your ton of grain, if it comes with that net zero um, package. But right now, obviously, there's no there's no option for me to sell my grain as net zero. So this year, I'm probably just going to sell all of my carbon certificates. But next year, I will expect probably to keep them. Um, I hope to find a deal with some a grain buyer who might who, who wants that. I guess at the crux of this debate, Thomas, is around the race for net zero and the fact that farmers are in a unique position where they can actually deliver net calling as well. And of course, farming and food production has been part of the problem, it, it, depending on how you analyse the amount of emissions that are going into the global atmosphere. It's anything up to around 30% of carbon emissions are coming from agriculture. And so there's a degree to which if you're in the energy sector or in the trans sports sector and you're looking across at farming, then you're saying, well, why why is it that farming is able in the first instance to deliver net cooling, but why are they waiting to deliver net zero and taking my money from the energy sector or the transport sector in order um, to help me deliver my emissions? You're in this unique position. Is it not the case that you should be delivering net zero in your own business before then going further onto that cooling and monetizing that additional element? It's, it's a really good point and it's it's a, it just gets I think you got down to the crux of the matter really well like any other industry is working really hard to reduce their emissions they're never ever going to get below zero right they, they've just got to get as low as they possibly can farming and and what we do we're in you know we, we've often had a, a tough time in our industry we often get the finger pointed at us but this is the most exciting time to be a farmer because we have this opportunity to to provide solutions and to support other industries that need the help basically uh, definitely we we need to we need it needs to be a collaboration it needs to be part of part of you know the whole world needs to improve we all accept that but farmers are doing the work they're making a difference on the ground it's not easy it's expensive it requires investment and so they need support to do that and i think the best way to do it is putting a price on carbon and finding those companies that are you know doing bad reduce you know releasing a lot of emissions and force you know forcing them to find solutions and to help solutions and farming's in this most exciting position of like as we've said before a win 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 you know if you plant a monoculture of trees it, you know, it's not great for other things but if you plant you know if you improve soil, it's a win for everybody. I love the way that you're always so positive about this, that this is a fantastic time for being a farmer. And I agree with you entirely. I think this is a really exciting moment for a whole range of different reasons. Uh, a lot of it linked into this ability to, to analyse the multiple metrics and understand the rebalancing of land. And carbon is, of course, part of that. And, and I guess there's a degree to which whether you're offsetting for another industry or offsetting for your own business, if we're getting towards net zero and net cooling and we're accelerating that process, that's got to be a good thing. Juna, you're helping to reverse desertification across large swathes of land in the Sahel. So you must have to deal with a wide variety of farmers and pastoralists. How do you go about getting buy-in for your projects from people on the ground? Yeah, so um, that's actually related to what Thomas just said, that I, I think we're in a very exciting moment because for a long period of time, people used to, the society used to look down to farmers and, and, and ranchers and pastoralists, but we increasingly now seeing that uh, perhaps 
uh, they're doing a very important work, and, and that is that they are the stewards of, of, of land, and, and which is probably the most, I mean, which is the most valuable assets that we have. The way, uh, the way we are working here is that uh, a lot of communities, they're becoming, you set up different kind of uh, community-based natural resource management committees and so on. Farmers and pastoralists, they're not only food producers anymore, but they're also conserva- conservationists and, and natural resource managers. In that case, then, so let's say whether it works or not, it's still there are, there are projects where it works and there's projects where it doesn't work. And, and there's a lot of research to be done there. Uh, I'm actually going to start also, uh, I'll, I'll be doing my own PhD research on, on that as well. The, the thing is what we're setting up is that farmers and pastoralists, they're going to be also uh, not just being benefiting from these co-benefits of, of increased natural assets, such as soil organic matter and increased vegetative cover and let's say improved water cycle, but they're also going to be paid for carbon. So uh, we, you're setting up different uh, payments for ecosystem services programs and then let's say if a pastoralist group follows the grazing plan which improves the range and health so for its production uh, water infiltration and also carbon sequestration then they also get paid for that but yeah there, there's still a there's definitely this is a, a new industry and there's a lot of research to be done but i do i do believe uh, that we're going to be finding better and better ways to to get the buy-in from the local communities both that's brilliant thanks so much it's been a fascinating conversation I'd like to thank my guests, Juna Mikola from Soil Watch and Thomas Gent from Gentle Farming. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.